Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. We are very pleased to welcome Jeffrey Deaver to our microphones. He's a number one international best-selling author who has sold more than 50 million books worldwide. His books are sold in 150 countries and translated into 25 languages. His first novel, featuring Lincoln Rhyme, The Bone Collector, made into a major motion picture starring Denzel Washington and Angelina Jolie. He has received and been shortlisted for too many awards for us to mention today, and that would be amazing enough. But Jeffrey Deaver is what you call a value-added author. He has written a James Bond novel, appeared as a corrupt reporter on his favorite, what other kind are there, on his favorite soap opera, As the World Turns, and been a lyricist for a country western album. He also happens to be former attorney and, as I understand, the president of the Mystery Writers of America for 2017. His latest book is The Burial Hour, a new Lincoln Rhyme novel. Welcome. Well, thank you. Always good to talk to you. You know, I, I, the thing I like about you is you seem like such a really nice guy, but you get some pretty bizarre situations going out there. I wonder about what kind of dreams you have. That's Oh, well, you know, it's interesting you, you mentioned that, because just the other night I had a, a, a dream. Uh, you know, I wish I could say it was like a sick and twisted nightmare, but in fact it was a uh, one of those odd dreams where, uh, you know, the, the, the trees uh, turn into clouds and then the cloud mm-hmm. becomes, you know, a vice presidential candidate or something like that. <laughs> and I thought... You know, it was it had maybe a, a a good mystery twist in it. I thought, and then I woke up and I couldn't remember the darn thing. So, oh, so, so my my novel for 2018 is probably going to be something entirely different from what I'd hoped. <laughs> and and that's the way it happens, I suppose. There are you know, you have few things you miss, you know. But uh, I I suspect you do so much research and and so much interesting things. I mean, you get to. And this one invent a new espionage acronym for one thing, which I found I really delightful. Yeah, you know, the um, having the whole power of um, creation in your hand when you uh, write novels is is really great. But you you mentioned an, an interesting uh, interesting word just then research. The I, I have to say I was born with a pretty vivid imagination, but I have to rein it in continually. And so when I did write The Burial Hour, and we can talk about that in, in just mm-hmm. a bit, I came up with some um, you know, pretty fanciful ideas. I outlined and planned my books ahead of time, and I, I did the first rough draft of the outline, and I went back and looked at it and said, you know, it's, there are things here that really aren't grounded in reality. So I, I sat down and did a great deal of research, and um, you know, I'm, I'm hesitating a little because the books, as you know, are are very uh, twist oriented. I have oh my surprises. goodness, yes. Yeah. But the um, uh, the the government organization you're talking about uh, actually has its roots in some some uh, uh, real history of uh, government security. And I I thought, well, you know, I was kind of making it up out of whole cloth. I thought, but then going back and looking at my research, I learned no, there are some uh, some aspects of uh, of uh, government security that. Uh, are uh, echoed rather inadvertently in my book, and I adjusted a few things, and I didn't have to make as many changes as I as I thought. And if this doesn't intrigue your readers, I certainly or your listeners, I certainly don't know what will. <laughs> you, you are a tease. You know that, and that's that's why you're so good at what you, what you do. I, I want to talk a little bit about process here because I noticed that in this book you've got seven sections designated, uh, almost as if they were episodic, but. And they certainly have some of that, but it's all tied together. It's all a straight through line uh, through the story. But it was kind of interesting what you chose and how that accented that particular section of the story. 
Sure. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the, the book if I could, and this will yeah. address uh, that uh, comment, which is very perceptive, I, I will say, because that was intentional, but I wasn't sure if uh, folks would necessarily uh, catch on to it. Um, all of my books take place over a short period of time. The the high point of my uh, career, I would say, uh, creatively, was managing to write a book of about 400 pages that took place over eight hours. Mm-hmm. So it was in real time. Actually, it was almost a little faster than than real time. Uh, that was very difficult to do. But in general, my um, my Lincoln Rhyme books, uh, well, actually all of my, my thrillers, take place over a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. The Burial Hour does it does that as well however we have one element that i had to work around and that was this the book begins in new york city where lincoln and amelia and for your your listeners who may not be familiar lincoln rhyme is the character from the bone collector movie which you mentioned and amelia Sachs is his um a partner both professionally and uh, and personally and uh they are on the trail of a uh, believe it or not, a, a sick and twisted <laughs> apparent serial killer in, in New York City. Well, he eludes them, and where does he end up a few days later in, um, in Italy? Italy, yeah. And th- through, through various machinations, um, they end up there trying to track him down. Well, the, the story, although it does take place over a very sh- uh, fairly short period of time, required me to get them to Italy, and mm-hmm. I thought, well... In this book, we don't need to be quite so much of a racehorse. We can slow down a bit. So each of those seven sections you talk about are a separate day. So in a way, The Burial Hour is, I guess, my most leisurely book, although I try in every one of those sections to make it a a race against the clock to make sure that the victim is saved or (laughs) if the victim isn't saved, which does happen sometimes in my books, of course, that Lincoln and Amelia can at least get clues that will allow them to close in on the bad guy. Yeah. And again, this is, I just want to say this is very highly satisfying and a great page turner because that's, that's the way I work. I get going on this thing and it's in the zone. And next thing I know it's 3 a.m. And I've got to get up in five minutes and go to work. But no, this is, this is excellent stuff all the way through. And one of the things I like about the small touches is you really have a gift for simile. Um, and, and and metaphor as well. But the one that, that jumped out of it, two of them jumped out at me. Earlier in the book, you write the boundary between the state and federal jurisdiction and criminal investigation is as gray as the East River in March, which I found beautiful. And at the end of the book, close to the end, you talked about as vague as a narrator in a Viagra ad. Now that, <laughs> that is poetry, my friend. I appreciate that so much. Well, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because um, uh, my... Um, my process in writing a book is, uh, as I, I kind of alluded to this a moment ago, is very, uh, I, I guess I'd say, and I'm not ashamed of this, very mechanical. The um, um, outline um, ends up being about, for the burial hour, is about 130, 140 pages. That's a, a schematic. I start on my wall. I put it all together, and then you know, I move things around. Then I do a lot of the research we talked about a moment mm-hmm. ago. But then I sit down to write the book, and that's when I occasionally have moments of inspiration. Now, I'm not saying that 
a reference to a uh, Viagra ad, which just occurred to me, and I thought that was you know rather rather clever. I'm not saying that's uh, Shakespearean literature, but it um, uh, you know I, th- I thought it might raise a few uh, a few smiles on the parts of my uh, uh, on the parts of my readers. And uh, so little things like that, where do they come from? I have no idea, but I'm, I'm glad they uh, they resonate if they do. Yeah. I, one writer said he just left a little bowl of milk out for the brownies in the back step every day. And that's where that <laughs> that's stuff very came. well said. I like yeah. that. Uh. <laughs> um, I, the one aspect, another that I, I really w- resonated with me and you talk about how rhyme just doesn't, n- doesn't know anything very little. that's not related to criminalistics. In fact, doesn't want to know. And that is right out of Shakespeare, or Shakespeare, right out, out of, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes, a study Sherlock in Scarlet, yeah. and you you did write something for a Sherlock Holmes anthology, did you not? I did, um, and and the comment your, your um, listeners uh, may um, recall this because it was the line from uh, Conan Doyle. This was echoed in the Benedict Cumberbatch um, remake, uh, reboot, I should say, not remake necessarily, of Sherlock Holmes, where Watson was um, astonished to learn that um, Holmes didn't know that the Earth and the planets revolved around the sun. And, and Watson, of course, being a man of science, looked at Holmes, another man of science, and said, how can you, how can you possibly not know that? And Holmes's response, very much like Lincoln Rhymes might be, is that it doesn't affect my job. And what's most important is my uh, deductions in uh, catching the criminal or whoever... Um, uh, the, whatever clue they're they're prowling after at the moment, and it, it, it's odd you mention that because Sherlock Holmes was an inspiration for uh, Lincoln Rhyme. Holmes did get out into the um, uh, the field a bit, uh, and you know he did he knew his fisticuffs and he carried a, 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 a big old British revolver occasionally, but but mostly he was a um, he was never happier than when he was engaging in a mental chess match with the villain. And Lincoln Rhyme is the, um, the same way. So uh, Sherlock Holmes has always been a, um, a big influence on, uh, my, on, on, on me. And uh, most recently, the uh, short story I, I wrote, and I, I do love short fiction a great deal, was not a period piece um, about, um, about Sherlock Holmes, but it was a modern-day story about a man obsessed with the uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, myth. And, and my main character was um, somebody who fancied himself as smart as Holmes and kept trying to volunteer uh, to the police to solve a series of crimes. And um, I, again, because I'm, I'm obsessed with the twist and the surprise, I, I really <laughs> I can't say very much else about the mm-hmm. um, about the story, but it was very fun to uh, uh, it was very fun to write, and and I, I you know I go back to the Conan Doyle stories uh, quite a bit. Uh, Holmes uh, appeared in uh, uh, relatively few novels, but uh, Doyle wrote a lot of uh, a lot of short stories, and they still hold up. They are just a great delight to read. <laughs> One of the things that that though he doesn't know some basic facts and doesn't want to know them, he knows that. Rats shed due to Baronella bacteria. That dactylosopy is fingerprinting. Knows the chemical composition of electroconductive jelly for shock treatments. All of which are factors in the book that he does know because they are relevant to what he's doing. 
Yeah, and and if you, if your next question is going to be Jeff, did you know all that before you sat down to write the book? My <laughs> yes. answer will be no, because <laughs> uh, because of research and uh, you know these. Uh, one of the reasons I write crime books is that um, crime books allow us very lucky authors to include all sorts of esoterica in the story. Mm-hmm. In my my the course of my roughly 40 novels now i have written about uh, the uh, the infrastructure grid uh, the power system about tattooing a book of mine a few years ago called the broken window was about a data miner who had access to every single bit of information that we generated, you know, from insurance claims to our shoe size, to our our history, to our children, to potential uh, very obscure and rare diseases we might have. And and the, the villain in that book was not somebody you would think who was, you know, working for the government, a big plot. It was a, um, a fellow who was a, um, in effect, a serial killer who used, who had access to all our personal information. And uh, I just, you know, was fascinated, um, fascinated with that. One of the problems that we writers do have to cope with, though, is that these things are so interesting. We tend to put too many details in the the book, certainly in our our first drafts, or I do at least. I don't want (laughs) to suggest anyone else is is guilty of this, although I think we've all read a book where we, we say to the author, well, let's get on with the story. You know, this we're on the yeah. fifth page of how the missile was constructed, and okay, it's yeah. interesting, but let's really move things along. Yeah. So, so I have to be very careful about being ruthless in editing out uh, many of the facts that I find interesting, but that aren't relevant to the uh, to the story. Well, it's it's you know you want too you want too many raisins or too many seeds in the seed cake, you know. Oh, well said. Seed. Can yeah. I steal that that metaphor? It's all yours. <laughs> File the serial number off. It's yours. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> There's some, some some interesting observations in here, too, that I, I picked up, because I do take lots of notes when I read, particularly your books, I have to say. Um, one of you, you point out, you say, evenings are best for listening. The cool, damp air lifts sounds from the ground and trees, sounds you'll never hear otherwise, and carries them to you like the wise men's gifts. Again, a good metaphor there, but it's also interesting that it's true, that it, that it is, for some reason, a better time to listen to things. Yeah, I... Um... When I, I sat down to think about what the burial hour would be about, I um, I thought, well, you know, something I have never looked at is uh, the sense of sound. Mm-hmm. I have uh, a book, um, what was that? Oh, Solitude Creek, about a villain who was, I guess we'd say a voyeur. He, he, he tried to find uh, situations where people were in extremis. Maybe there'd been a car accident. Mm-hmm. Or uh, there had been a, uh, uh, say, a, a fire at a hotel or something, and he wanted to be there and record this uh, unfolding um, tragedy. And and when that didn't, when he couldn't get enough of that high, he would start creating fires and and things uh, like this. And and that was what my uh, my hero had to had to uh, track down and stop, of course. But I thought, you know, I've never done anything with sound, and so I created a, a villain in the burial hour, who is a, uh, um, he's had some, some mental issues. He, he's a bit, he's been troubled, but he, 
um, has has this sense that the world is revealed through sounds. For instance, he, he gets depressed sometimes because there was there was no recording device available in Roman times. And he, I think there's a scene where he he, he says, I, 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 I so wish there had been like an MP3 recorder at um, Calvary because he would like to have heard the uh, the comments between Jesus and the soldiers who were crucifying yes. him, or maybe heard Pontius Pilate's voice. And um, so this is somebody who clearly uh, has, first of all, may have a, a few screws loose, but on the other hand, he has a, a you know quite an obsession with sound and how it impacts our life. And so when I, as I as I do with all my characters, I kind of got into his head. Uh, not not homicidally, I, I like to think, but but certainly try to figure out the world through his eyes, and so I was just very aware of sounds. I um, and one evening I was sitting outside with my dog, and I suddenly realized I was hearing things um, on a like a cool, moist night that I, I hadn't I hadn't heard during the day. Uh, you know, certainly there were more probably I know some frogs come out at night and so forth. So, but it wasn't that so much. It's just the whole ambience of noise uh, struck me as a um, an interesting phenomenon, and you know, bang, that ended up in the book. Yeah, and and your character here has an extraordinary gift to be able to listen to something that's been recorded and and focus on different aspects and sort out what the sounds are and, and decipher what they mean, but to some incredible degree, which is really fascinating to watch or listen read about. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm always looking for puzzles as well. And uh, the the uh, incident you're talking about is uh, where the um, police who are working with Lincoln Rhyme in now this is in Italy the book takes place in Naples largely uh, they know something terrible is going to happen and all they have as a clue is a um, a recorded phone message and the words themselves are not particularly helpful because the bad guys know that um, the NSA or whoever might be listening could hear the words and deduce what's going on. So they're, they're talking in code, more or less. But they haven't thought to mask out the other sounds. And so um, we have a scene where um, Lincoln, with some assistance, deconstructs the ambient noise around the, the words and in fact, they have to listen to it a number of times so that the words become meaningless. And then they listen past the words. Yeah. And uh, again, I won't give away what uh, what happens, but I, I think the analysis itself that they go through is is fascinating in its own right, whatever the outcome of the uh, right. of the analysis. And I, I found that was uh, quite fascinating. And I, I will say that I, in writing the book, and for a while afterward was was much more aware of of sounds trying to define what is that odd odd sound there I, an example just uh, odd coincidence when i was writing the book i thought now what, something's wrong with my um a fire alarm because i heard a, a, what sounded like a fire alarm going off in part of the house but it was a very different sound and i thought either it's broken or it means something else maybe a carbon monoxide mm-hmm. I said, it just doesn't sound quite right. And so I walked into my living room, and there was a bird sitting on my mantle. And it was a, it, I don't know what kind of bird it was, but it made a call that was, um, I'm sure it was inadvertent, but mimicking what would be a, a, a kind of a smoke detector 
sound. Oh my goodness! And he had flown into my head. The door open, and he kind of flown into the house, and I kind of managed to open all the doors and usher him out. But it was the volume was loud. It was a, oh. a very um, a very troubling sound. I mean, thinking that there was may have been a fire or smoke or something like that. But no, it turned out to be this little tiny bird with you know really good lungs. Yes, they, they some of them do. <laughs> one of the other, I keep bouncing around because there's so many intriguing aspects of this book. Um, at one point, I want to quote this one to you. Uh, uh, it says, it was never wise to incur the anger of a muse. Now, you thought they were charming. You thought they were delicate creatures who lived quietly in the sequestered world of art and culture, lounging about on Olympus. But they were, of course, the daughters of Olympus's most powerful and ruthless god, who, of course, is Zeus. That's a bit of classicism that's nice to have in the story. Yeah, I, I I needed to make those four years of Latin I took in high school pay off to some extent, and uh, and uh, yeah, the the, um, the villain uh, in my book, this uh, young man who um, whose identity we don't know until very very late in the book. We we see him as a character, but we don't know who he is and what his what his story is. Um, he um, is moved by the muses, and of course. Uh, Eurotripe, uh, who's the muse of uh, music, the, the muse that's closest related to sound, his obsession, of course, and um, being over in Italy, uh, of course, the Italians, uh, the Romans, I should say, borrowed much from the, the Greek gods, but there was a huge Greek influence uh, uh, then and now in, um, in Italy, especially around Naples. There were many Greek settlers there and further south. Um, but I thought, yeah, th- th- this gives the book a little bit of a um, little bit of resonance, and at the same time, it it um, it sort of brings together a lot of, uh, I guess, what I would call, and I think you'd refer to uh, classical culture in the modern day. And uh, I haven't really mentioned what the <laughs> what the theme of the book is, but what happens is this this villain goes over there from New York. He escapes. And begins kidnapping refugees, asylum seekers, on the uh, apparent theory that he can have as many victims as he wants because the the authorities will be um, relatively unconcerned that a an asylum seeker, and uh, you know we would call them undocumented here or a refugee, would be less protected by the police. They, they mm-hmm. wouldn't put as much effort into tracking down a crime and um the refugees are coming from uh, largely in Italy from North Africa either um uh, Libya of course which is uh, the uh, basically the definition of a failed state yes. uh Tunisia to some extent uh, Morocco as well but also many sub-saharan african uh folks who are, are escaping le- less for uh, political reasons than for uh, economic and of course uh, been terrible droughts and famine down there. So this huge influx into Italy of, um, of refugees and asylum seekers has put such a burden on the, um, on the country. And, and this fellow, uh, it, it appears, thinks, well, I can, I can have my way with as many of them as I want and the police won't do anything. But uh, they, they hadn't figured on Lincoln Rhyme, or he had not figured on Lincoln Rhyme and Amelia, who are, um, uh, say, a victim's a victim, and we're going to track him down. And there is some truth to what my uh, my villain's theory was that there there is uh, these these uh, refugees are, are not popular among many people and uh, 
Some police are, are a bit lethargic about it, but others agree with Lincoln and Amelia. And so the book is really a cat and mouse chase. These uh, good cops and Lincoln and uh, Amelia and uh, a few other folks uh, try as fast as they can to stop this fellow from praying in the uh, refugee camps. Yeah. I, I have an odd question for you, and this is this is maybe a bit off the subject, but it seems to it came up to me. Do movies like Saw, which are referred to as torture porn, enter into some of the things? There are some setups there that had echoes of that for me. And it, it, is it because the popular culture has moved that direction that you feel comfortable doing that? Sure. And I'm glad you brought that up because I feel very strongly about those um, uh, movies like that or the general concept of uh, torture porn. And I, I, I find it... Um, um, I find them quite objectionable, but not for the reason you might think. The um, films that depict graphic violence or books that depict graphic violence, I find to be um, a creative failure. Um, Alfred Hitchcock made suspenseful films with virtually little violence. We we saw that, you know, the birds were... Uh, the, the the seagulls pecked at Kippy Hedren and a few other people, and I, you know, the, there was a bit of blood. In Psycho, I think Martin Balsam got his forehead cut before he yeah. was fell down the stairs and died. But we never really saw anything, and that's very cathartic and positive suspense. The the films that depict graphic violence, um, I, I, I find uh, my my sense is that the the creator didn't go to the trouble to create suspense. They had to rely on escalating scenes mm-hmm. of, uh, of gore, basically. Now, the setups in the burial hour, and uh, we can explain one right now. There's yeah. a scene where apparently the, um, uh, the killer has rigged a noose for the, uh, for the victim and is videotaping this and is giving the police X number of minutes or hours to find the victim before he uh, before he dies. Now I, I of course can't can't give anything away, but we never see anyone actually. Well, we actually never see anyone hurt. Now that's the setup, but I'm very careful about cutting away, uh, creating the suspense, and then um, we shift to the police's uh, point of view or uh, Amelia or Lincoln's point of view. And we see the aftermath of what this crime might be, but in the um, in the burial hour, as in almost all of my forty novels and eighty or so short stories, we we never we rarely see in the burial hour never, but in in most of my books we rarely see a killing actually take place. Uh, I, I had an interesting incident a few years ago where a woman came up to me and said, "I was you know I was very disappointed by that." that scene you showed that that woman was killed and it was so graphic and it was just disgusting and i said oh oh well, could you show me that scene and she said well it was like in the first you know 40 pages or so and she picked up the book and flipped through it and she said well i can't i can't find it and i said you know she was a reader she bought the book so yeah. it was very I was, I was being gentle with her but i said i think that was in your imagination because the scene was this the woman walked into the room where the killer was, and we knew he was armed, whether it was a knife or a rope or whatever it was. I don't know. <clears throat> and then we cut to another scene, and the, the scene after that, Amelia Sachs finds the body. 
and Amelia thinks reflects on what had happened, but we never saw it. And the woman, uh, my my reader, said, "You know, you're right. That was in my imagination. I'm the sick and twisted one." I'm paraphrasing <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. But um, but that's true. So the uh, the setups in uh, things like the Saw movie and other uh, films like that, they um, uh, they will uh, occasionally have a, uh, uh, I guess I would say, a very uh, suspenseful. Uh, often mechanical uh, scene in which something terrible will happen, but and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's that's the basis of suspense fiction, whether it's espionage or a thriller or even an Agatha Christie murder mystery. But it, it, we have to make sure that readers are not. Uh, it's not really a very literary term. Are not grossed out because yeah. you know gore is bad, suspense is good. Yeah, and obviously, what, what is it? Hitchcock said that. Murder by the Babbling Brook, much better yeah, than exactly. a dark and stormy yeah. night. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When um, Now, this book, actually, as we interview, it's going to come out next week, as I, as I understand, on the 11th. Is that correct? That's correct, the 11th. Yeah. Um, I, I should mention that um, you uh, have a really good, strong relationship with VJ Books, and we'll provide signed copies for them. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it's... Um, um, it's a phenomenon that I wasn't aware of when I began writing. I was not a book collector. I bought books. I bought books ever since I was a, a kid. I would spend my allowance or my uh, lawn mowing money on, mm-hmm. uh, say, the latest James Bond book or John D. McDonald book. I was so glad that they were available in paperback because as yes. a, like a 10-year-old in 19, 1960, a hardcover for you know at the time what two or three dollars was more yeah. money than I could could deal with. But I remember the Signet paperbacks for like twenty five cents. Yes, and uh, and so I, I bought hundreds, thousands of books. But it wasn't until I began writing myself that I, I learned about the uh, first edition collection and the value of an autographed uh, value of an autographed book. And now I have uh, a collection that is not. It's really not worth um, a great deal uh, because I, I tend not to get the uh, first first editions books like, uh, let's say, a first edition of uh, a Sue Grafton book, A is for Alibi, yeah. or some of Michael Connelly's first ones can be very uh, can be very expensive. Uh, but of course, having the author's signature on them makes a makes a, a big deal. And I will wherever I go, I will sign all the books that people have uh, have brought. I know some authors say, oh, I'll, only, I'll only sign this one. But um, uh, no, I think uh, readers just love a signed book. And Vijay is, is such a good, uh, uh, such a good uh, philosophy about getting signed books into the hands of the uh, readers. I've been uh, partners with them for a long time. Yeah, and they said, you're one of the good ones when I talk to them about you. So, <laughs> And I agreed, having, having talked with you before. Is there anything that I have not touched on that you think you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I think not. Um, I, I was very excited about writing The Burial Hour because, as Ernest Hemingway said, uh, if you want to send a message as a novelist, don't put it in a book. Go to Western Union. Yeah. But what he meant, by that, oh, and I shouldn't pick up a little bit. I, I, I've said that in a number of um, conventions and speaking engagements, and and usually the older folks in the audience nod, 
and the younger folks look at each other and say, what was Western Union? (laughs) So so if Papa were around now, he probably would say, if you want to send a message, put it on Facebook or or tweet it out. But, but, you know, Hemingway was being a little facetious about that because, of course, his books have important themes in them. Mm-hmm. But he, he just didn't proselytize. He didn't get up on a soapbox. And I try not to do the same thing. But I do think a book stays with us longer if it deals with themes that are important. And The Burial Hour really does look at issues of uh, our responsibility to those from nations that are in trouble and those people fleeing just absolutely desperate circumstances. When I uh, conceived of the burial hour, I thought it would be a um, a good chance to bring a little substance to the book mm-hmm. by writing about the uh, refugee and the uh, undocumented uh, immigrant situation, uh, which has impacted many, many countries. Uh, the United States far, far less than many nations around the uh, around the world. And I don't want to preach or proselytize. I just want to raise in the reader's mind the uh, questions of um, how do we, as people living in a, a country um, that is, uh, you know, in general, very fortunate, how do we um, help the folks who are coming from countries that are failing or in a very, very uh, dangerous state now? And um, I don't, you know, preach one way or the other, but I do raise the uh, question that, yeah, it's possible there could be some bad apples among uh, immigrants, uh, but um, uh, there are also many, many uh, wonderful people, and that, you know, we're we're pretty smart. We have a lot of resources. We can probably figure out uh, how to protect ourselves against the bad guys or weed them out. And, uh, you know, readers can agree or disagree with that, and it doesn't uh, affect their enjoyment of the story. But I thought, uh, you know, if you, when you close the last page of the book, sometimes that uh, could be the beginning of the story, not necessarily the end. Beautifully said. I'm not surprised, as, as coming from you. Uh, our guest today has been Jeffrey Deaver. His latest is The Burial Hour, another Lincoln Rhyme book. Thanks so much for being so generous with time with us today. Always a pleasure talking to you. You take care now.